For those of you who are visiting or I have not had the privilege of meeting, my name is Ken. I'm a retired Army chaplain and retired teaching elder of the Presbyterian Church in America. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to stand up and share God's word with you today. Although I've been doing this for 32 years, and you know, I get just about as nervous today as I did on the first day I preached in seminary. It, it takes me about five minutes. My wife, Kathy, will tell you, she'll see it in this, when I'm doing, she'll, it'll click like that and I'll get into the, my groove. But it's just, it's because it's, a, it's an awesome responsibility that we don't take lightly to come and preach the word of God to you. And uh, so thank you for the privilege and honor of doing that today. Our text is found in 2 Timothy, which is one of three books that uh, together are commonly called the pastoral epistles. They were written to two young elders, Timothy and Titus, and show uh, something about Paul's concern about those who would pick up his mission of completing and sharing the gospel upon his death. Now, some content in the book are specifically uh, applicable to elders. However, since elders are to serve as an example to us about how to live out the gospel, most of what Paul writes, the majority of what Paul writes, applies directly to every follower of Christ. The main theme in 2 Timothy uh, is a challenge to guard the gospel. That's why the title today, Guard the Gospel. And Paul charges Timothy in chapter 1, verse 14, to guard the truth which has been entrusted to you. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul expands some of the earlier themes he talks about in chapter 1, about guarding the gospel by faithfully living it, passing it on intentionally, and enduring hardship for it bravely. So before we jump into God's word, let us, uh, let us pray. Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son. Let your written word now be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word. Bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Hear the word of God that comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You can find it on page 995 of the New Testament portion of the pew that's in the, the Bible that's in the pews. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. On December 7, 1941, uh, aircraft of the Japanese Empire conducted a surprise attack on the United States Pacific Fleet that was anchored in the blue waters of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and brought the United States into the Second World War. When the attack was over, nearly 20 American ships were destroyed or damaged, including eight battleships. There were 2,403 Americans killed and 1,178 wounded that day. And one of the survivors of that attack was a man by the name of Jim Downing. 
And when the attack began, he was sitting with his wife of five months at their home outside of Pearl Harbor. And without a thought, he rushed to his ship, the USS West Virginia, which is a Colorado-class battleship built just down the road here in Newport News. It was already sinking when Jim arrived. It had already taken several hits and was really just barely above water. He boarded the flaming deck of the USS Tennessee, another battleship that was berthed right next to the Virginia, West Virginia, in order to get onto the ship by sliding down its five-inch gun barrel onto the West Virginia. So at that point, the barrels of the gun must have been pointed down, having the Tennessee having already been hit and in flames, in order to fight the fires that were threatening to detonate the ship's ammunition and blow it to pieces, like several other ships had already experienced. Now later, after he helped remove the dead and wounded shipmates from the West Virginia, he visited the West Virginia's wounded, many of whom would die that night. He talked to them and he took down the contact information of each and every one of them. And then he wrote a letter to every one of the parents of the sailors killed on that ship. Many remember Jim for his heroic actions on that day. Some would also remember that Jim had, been, had become a believer in 1935, six years earlier, through the witness of, a, of, a Dawson, of Dawson Trotman. Some of you may recognize that name. He was a young Southern California lumberyard worker who turned disciple maker. Some called him Dawes. That's the, what they most people in the Navigator's ministry refer to him as Dawes. Um, he, found, he founded a worldwide ministry known as the Navigators, which focused on developing disciples person by person by person, a ministry that has shaped my own spiritual growth in many ways throughout the years. Jim became self-described Navigator number six. That's how he often described himself. That is, he is the sixth man to be discipled by Dawson Trotman. He became the ministry leader on the West Virginia, and he helped Dawson Trotman in his ministry throughout the Pacific Fleet right before Pearl Harbor. Before the West Virginia went down on December 7th, 125 men were growing in Christ and sharing their faith because of Jim. After finishing a 24-year Navy career, throughout which the whole time he um, was a witness and, and discipler for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of going into law and politics as his original goal, he went into the navigators full time. One of my good army friends had the opportunity to meet him this past year before Jim passed away in February at the age of 104. In fact, he wrote his last book the Other Side of Infamy, which is the story of his time at Pearl Harbor and afterwards, when he was 100 years old, which gave him the uh, distinction of being the uh, Guinness Book of World Records holder for the oldest author. <laughs> and he was still living out the Navigator motto. That's why he was there. He was there with a group of uh, military folks, I think, at Carlisle Barracks. Uh, to, he was still living out the motto, to know Christ and to make him known. Jim Downing helped to reach untold numbers of people and is an example of someone who understood the main point of our text today. The importance of guarding the gospel by passing it on to others, depending on God's strengthening grace, even in the face of hardship. Now let's consider Paul's message to us by reflecting on three ways we guard the gospel. 
We guard the gospel by living in God's grace. We guard the gospel by passing it on. And we guard the gospel by enduring hardship. Now Paul begins in verse 1 by reminding us that we guard the gospel by living in God's grace. Whatever God calls us to do can only be fully accomplished by relying on his grace, not our own strength. Whatever it is in life. Not, it doesn't have to all be ministry things, but just living the Christian life takes the empowerment of God. I remember one of the first men who discipled me, I complained to him one time, I said, the Christian life is hard. He said, no, it's not hard, it's impossible, unless you live in the strength of God. And he's right. We may try in our own natural abilities, and the Lord knows I've done that often enough, and I'm sure I'll do it a lot more. But in the end, our struggle with our sinful nature, the world system, and Satan, our adversary, will wear us down and make us ineffective. Paul doesn't simply tell us to buck up or pull ourselves together, like with some messages of the gospel you'll hear in some places, which really isn't the gospel. Rather, he reminds us that Christ will give us the strengthening and grace to do whatever he calls us to do. The word grace in this text, combined with the idea of power in the word strengthening, refers, more than, refers to more than just God's undeserved favor as a basis of salvation. It builds on that. Here, Paul is speaking specifically of the gracious nature of the Spirit's empowering work that builds on that grace of salvation. That this empowerment comes to us by abiding day by day in dependence on the enabling grace that flows from our union with Christ and boosted by our communion with him. If we find ourselves de desperate for strength as we seek to live out the gospel, we're in good company. Paul felt it. And he knew that Timothy would feel it. If we feel desperate for strength, it's because it means that we've come to the end of our own wisdom and strength. That's usually what happens to me. It's usually not until I get to the, to the end of my own rope, what I feel I can bring into the, to the, the equation, that I finally begin to turn and trust the wisdom and strength that comes from the Spirit of God. It means that we're ready to look to the grace that's mediated by God's Spirit instead of our own. And that grace empowers every aspect of life. There's not one aspect of our Christian life that doesn't need the empowering grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes if we're tired, it's because of the circumstances we face. The hardships we'll talk about here in a little while. Sometimes it's because we're spending all the, our own effort and energy to accomplish what God wants to accomplish through us and our behalf. And that grace empowers the exhortation that's the heart of the next part of our text. In verse 2, Paul tells us to guard the gospel by passing it on. I'm going to spend a little bit more time in this section because I really... I think it's the kind of the guts of this text. The Great Commission we're all familiar with in Matthew 20, 28, 19 to 20 is clear. While the aim of the church is ultimately to bring glory to God, we do that through the church's mission of making disciples. It's always been the church's mission to make disciples. But what is making disciples all about? One writer defines it as, and I think this is good, so listen to it carefully. Trusting God's presence as we intentionally enter into the lives of others to guide them to trust and follow Jesus and then to obey all his teachings. 
pretty straightforward. On end, one end, we will tell people about God's grace, leading them to faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. On the other end, we help others to walk in grace, to strive towards maturity in Christ. Disciple-making was to be a vital part of Timothy's ministry and ours. And in verse 2, Paul outlines the basic way of making disciples. It's a process of spiritual reproduction that is to continue until Christ returns. That was the heart of what the Navigator's ministry was all about, and the heart of many uh, of those kinds of ministries is to pass through spiritual reproduction the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ unto others. There are four generations of disciples mentioned in verse 2. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and others. Paul, disciple Timothy, who Paul encourages in this chapter, in this section, to pass on what he had heard from him to faithful men who would then in turn would teach others also. The fact that you and I are here this morning is a testimony that faithful people have guarded the gospel by passing it on from generation to generation for over 2,000 years. Whether that you, were a, you came to the Lord because somebody directly shared the word of God from, with you, or whether it was through something somebody published or wrote, or whether you name it or fill in the blank, some Christian believer faithfully passed on and guarded the gospel to pass and gave it to you. And that's why you're seated here, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as part of that great cloud of witnesses, we too are called to pass it on. And what is Timothy to pass on? He is to pass on what he has heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses. The late pastor theologian John Stott wrote that this phrase is not a reference to some sort of secret uh, tradition handed out privately to Timothy. That's, what the kind of, that's the kind of teaching the Gnostic heretics that Paul battled in some of his other letters claim to have. It refers to the totality of Paul's public ministry and instruction over his years of ministry. Those truths that were ultimately captured in the scriptures, like in the book of Romans and all of Paul's letters, were guaranteed by the many witnesses who also heard it and against which others could check Timothy's teaching. If they were unsure that what was being taught matched up with what Paul had passed on as an apostle Lord Jesus Christ, there were others around to whom he could, they could go and check it. It's just like I always encourage you to check what I preach from the front against the word of God to see if it's true. You have that responsibility. My responsibility and Dennis's responsibility is to bring the word of God to you as best that we can in our limited human ability. It's your responsibility as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to receive it and act on it, but to check it against the word of God to see if it is indeed what God has called you to do. Like Timothy, we are called to pass on the whole gospel of Christ. And when, when we think of discipleship, I think we often think of content that once learned makes someone a disciple. I mean, that's generally what we think. If you, just, if you read that book, or you go through that program, uh, you check those blocks, you are a disciple. And that's kind of how we normally think of it, I think, because of the way it has been taught in, in many circles. Um, 
Teaching is certainly important. And if you know me, that's what I feel is my gifting. So I, I believe it's important. Content is important. You have to know something. A disciple has to understand God's truth as revealed in his word. But that by itself will not produce life transformation. That by itself will not do it. I know because I know plenty of people I've met over my uh, professional career as a student, my wife would say. Um, I've met many people who have um, doctorates in theology and uh, in religion and things like that and who know nothing about the gospel. Nothing. Now, if I were to take a test with them, they may outmatch me question for question on the test and get the answer as long as it's content. But it's more than content. And Paul knew that. They have to understand something about the Word of God, surely. But Paul knew that discipleship transcends just passing on knowledge. It includes heart and hand. It includes affections and actions. Remember back to the Great Commission, Jesus' command there was to teach them to what? Observe all that I have commanded you. Not just teach them. That's the information part. But teach them to observe. Now, how will you know if somebody's observing what's been taught? Well, you'd see it in the way they respond to a situation in terms of their heart, or you see it in the way they act to the world around them or react to the world around them. It is about imitation. That information that has worked its way into us and that is now part of who we are and what we do. Information that shapes who we are. I often work with people from time to time who say, well, you know, and I talk to them about different theological truths, and sometimes I get the response, well, I don't do theology very well, or I don't do theology. I'm thinking, well, you know what? <laughs> theology is nothing but studying who God is and what he says in his word and in doing something about what you know. We may give it a, a title, and theology scares people away, or doctrine or things like that scares people away, but it's because we don't understand that it, it, what it is is taking information and, and doing something with that information. In and of itself, it's probably useless or close to useless, but coupled with the Spirit of God and enacted upon, it changes who we are and what we do. Following Jesus as a disciple is more than learning his teachings from the scriptures. It's about truth passed on through relationships, strengthened by experience in the context of community. I'll say that again. It's about truth passed on through relationships, strengthened by experience in the context of community. It is the process of learning to become more and more like Jesus. If we think of discipleship that way, it doesn't sound as scary, does it? It's about becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't leave us a discipleship program. Um, for people like me who kind of tend to look at things, you know, pretty straightforward and kind of uh, check the block, kind of void, that would have been probably easier if he had left us, you know, just follow this program, but it doesn't work that way. Because it's a lot more complex than that. In fact, discipling occurs in a whole lot of ways in the scriptures, not just in one or two ways. It occurs in, a, in dozens of ways or hundreds of ways in our interaction with one another as believers in Christ. The book Discipleship That Fits describes five biblically observed contexts. 
Uh, I think if you look, I've read the book, if you look at the book and you look at the scriptures, you can see these contexts. The numbers might differ, numbers aren't in the scripture, but the contexts, I think, certainly are. The public context takes place in groups of over 100 that are gathered about outside, gathered around outside resources, like what we experience on Sunday morning. It is primarily experienced in the church's life by our public worship. The social context occurs with groups of about 20 to 70, where we kind of get snapshots of who people are. We don't really get to know them, but we get snapshots of who they are. You know what I mean? We get, oh yeah, I knew that about that person. They went to school here, they were born here, they lived there. We have several kids, whatever. We may get snapshots of who they are, but we don't really get too much deeper than that. But there is an important aspect of our life together. We do that in such settings as a quarterly prayer dinners or the church picnics or the men's group or some other opportunities that we have to interact with one another. Uh, examples of the personal context, which is about four to 12 people, are home groups, opportunities for hospitality that you might have in your own house or homes, or Bible studies that people might belong to. The transparent context involves two to four people who can be totally candid about who they are and what they're going through. People like our spouses, if we're married, good friends to whom we have with whom we have accountable relationships, or sometimes it might be a more mature Christian mentor. It's like we think of it normally when we think of discipleship, we think of someone maybe meeting with some other people or one-on-one uh, -on -one with a person from time to time uh, and sharing. It can happen in any number of ways. And finally, the divine context, which is important, involves a believer alone with God engaged in one-on-one -on -one communion and connection with God. Now, God uses all five contexts to make us more like Jesus. But the greatest transformation occurs in the personal and transparent context. Discipleship is relational by nature. That's where it happens. Therefore, the greatest opportunities for transformation occur where there is the greatest opportunity for community. We see that in Jesus' own ministry to his disciples. He worked in a public and a social context, but he focused the energy that he had on the 12, which is a personal context, and even more to a smaller group of disciples, Peter, James, and John, which is like at the transparent context level. These disciples, Peter, James, and John, would become the core of the church's leadership after his ascension. And if we want to be a growing disciple and disciple maker, we must move past superficial relationships and engage in authentic, Christ-centered, gospel-centered community. Paul concludes today's passage by giving us three simple but powerful images that challenge us to guard the gospel by enduring hardship. So we guard, we guard the gospel by living it out in God's grace. We guard it by passing it on to others, but we guard it by enduring hardship. The ESV translates uh, verse 3 as share in suffering. At this point, I think the NIV gets the meaning a little better with the translation of endure hardship because hardship can include suffering. But hardship could be broader than that. And Paul is thinking here about the persevering, persevering in hardship, even if a task is difficult. And the images Paul uses are a single-minded soldier, a disciplined athlete, and a hardworking farmer. The first image is that of a single-minded soldier. The military meta metaphor shows the duty of the disciple to be single-minded in purpose and devoted in service. A soldier doesn't concern himself with civilian pursuits, but works to please his commanding officer. 
I mean, those of us who serve the military know there are some things we just don't do because we, we give up certain freedoms and rights that we could claim, but we don't because of the calling that we have. Anyone who has also served in the military knows a soldier has to be willing to give up worldly security, even to the point of death, and endure rigorous discipline and frequent hardships. As I was writing this and thinking about this, I had flashbacks to when I was a junior officer, you know, in the snow or sleeping in the rain without a tent just then because I was so tired. Uh, it didn't matter. It was pouring rain. I just lay down on the ground and slept, you know. I think of those kind of hardships when I think of what Paul is talking about in this image that we have to be willing to bear hardship, rigorous discipline, in order to, to do what God calls us to do. Paul wants Timothy not to become entangled with things that would detract him from the mission of the gospel. He's not saying that we should neglect our responsibilities or skip vacations, okay? That's not what he's saying. Paul is talking about a mindset, a sense of mission or purpose. The spiritual war is real. And those of us in ministry, we see it all the time. We feel it in our own lives, I can guarantee you. But we also see it in the lives of people around us who experience the brokenness that all of us experience in life. Just because we aren't seeing bullets fly doesn't mean that, the, that this, the battle isn't real. It's real. And it's too easy to get entangled with pursuits that distract us or things that don't really matter. It is easy even to let good things become idols. In fact, it's usually the good things that become idols. We are to put on the armor of God and stay in the battle until Christ, our commander, tells us that the war is over. And that's not going to happen until he comes again. The second image is that of a disciplined athlete. The athlete must train hard and compete according to the rules so that he or she is not disqualified. That's the kind of the image that Paul is presenting here. When I was a cross-country runner, and yeah, I actually did that. <laughs> I don't do it anymore. There were some simple rules. There was a starting point with a gun, there was a course, you had to run, and an end point. Now, if I started before the gun, or I got any assistance on the course, or if I deviated from the course at all, or if I failed to get across the finish line before everybody packed up and left, which never happened, but, but close sometimes, <laughs> um, they, those things would disqualify me. Paul wants Timothy to live a morally pure life, not to deviate from the rules, so that he is not disqualified in a service. Not because it's got anything to do with the earning of his salvation, but because it has everything to do with his ability to be a testimony for the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator correctly observes, Paul was not talking about the rule, about rule keeping to earn salvation. He was talking about the desire of every true believer to walk in godliness in accordance with God's word. We have rules by which we are to live. Our, we, our lives are being governed by the scriptures. We cannot take shortcuts, either redefining God's truth or disobeying it, which is what we all want to do when we're confronted with things that we don't like. If we want the reward of faithfulness, we must compete according to God's standard. The third image is of a hardworking farmer. And that image appeals to the certainty of some reward for the hardworking farmer who gets to keep a portion of the harvest for himself at the end. Paul wants Timothy to work as patiently and diligently as a farmer so he will bear spiritual fruit. It's not always glamorous work. But there are tremendous blessings when we see someone come to Christ, grow in their faith, and step out in service to God. 
There is a danger associated with hardship endured for the gospel. And one writer put it this way, and when we are called to suffer for the gospel, we are tempted to trim it, to eliminate those elements which give offense and cause opposition, to mute the tones which jar our sensitive modern ears, but we must resist the temptation. For above all, we are called to guard the gospel, keeping it pure, whatever the cost, and preserving it against every corruption. So in our text, Paul reminds us of the importance of guarding the gospel by preserving and passing it on to others, depending on God's strengthening grace, even in the face of hardship. Where are we on the pathway of preserving and passing on the gospel, of being and making disciples? If you're an unbeliever here this morning, your first step down that pathway of being a disciple is accepting Christ as your Savior and Lord. Keep seeking, keep asking difficult questions. You cannot experience the benefits of the gospel until you come to Christ and, and become his disciple by faith. Ask, talk to any of the pastors or elders, put them on the spot. Um, if you have any questions about what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, now, what about those of us who are followers of Christ? Speaking uh, about the Great Commission, pastor theologian D.A. Carson writes, the injunction given to at least the 11, but to the 11 in their role as disciples. Therefore, they are paradigms for all disciples. It's binding on all, on all Jesus' disciples to make others what they themselves are, disciples of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, in the modern church, the Great Commission is often referred to as the Great Omission, where only about one in ten of people of God actively seek to share with unbelievers, and less than one in 25 are either being discipled or had discipled others. Discipleship is critical. It's what Jesus did, it's what he commanded us to do, and it is the mission of the church. Now, is being a disciple or a disciple maker an optional activity for a few super-Christians, which is kind of how I think we sometimes made it? Is there kind of a two-tiered understanding of what it means to be a Christian? You've got, you know, a Christian, and then you've got a disciple. As he often does, John Piper has a great answer to that question. He says, every Christian should be helping unbelievers become believers by showing them Christ. That is, making a disciple. And every Christian should be helping other believers grow in, into more and more maturity, that is, making a disciple. And every Christian should be seeking to get help for themselves from others to keep on growing. That is also our discipleship. Now you might be thinking, okay, I can't share the gospel with someone, let alone be involved in discipling others. I mean, I don't have the knowledge or experience. Well, you don't need a theology degree to disciple other people effectively. You just need to know Christ and his teachings, to be filled with the Spirit, and step out in faith and obedience. You will ultimately learn by doing and by the mentoring and coaching of others. I remember when I first got involved in making this hour be, was being challenged to take on a group to, to help a group of young believers grow in their faith. And I turned to the guy who was discipling me, and I said, I can't do that. I don't know enough. He said, you can always help someone go as far as you've gone. So he had me there. Uh, yeah, okay, I can help these folks who are generally new believers. I can help them go at least as far as I've gone and probably learn, and learn something from them and grow farther myself. 
And then after a while, you know, I was discipling three folks who were discipling three folks who were discipling three folks. And uh, some of those people I still hear from occasionally or I see them on Facebook still walking with the Lord. And that's great. I mean, that's, that's when I need a boost. I look at those, those pages because I know that I have spiritual great-great-great-grandchildren who I'll never meet until I see the Lord face-to-face. And I have no, can take no credit for it because it was all God's doing to begin with. God calls us to start where we are. So that would be commit yourself for the small group here at Grace, if you aren't one, part of one already. Start practicing those one another passages in, the, in God's word. You know, pray for one another, encourage one another, serve one another. Those are all part of the discipleship process that we do for one another as we meet and engage with each other. Ask a more mature believer that you respect to work with you. Colin Marshall, Tony Payne of the Vine Project have a simple way of explaining it. So I'm going to do something a little out of the ordinary. Since many of us tend to be visual and God's given us the technology, I'm going to put up an image. I'm not going to explain everything that's on it. But Marshall and Payne write that disciples are made by the persevering proclamation of the word of God by the people of God in prayerful dependence on the spirit of God. Now, all we need to do in prayerful dependence on the Spirit is consider what we might say to those that we know to move them one step to the right. One step. One step closer to accepting Christ or one step closer to being more like him. It could be a short word of encouragement. It could be passing on something something for someone to read, which is my favorite project to do. that has to do with something that they're struggling with. Or it could be an invitation to come to church, a survival study, something. And once you've done that, consider what you could say again next to move them one more step to the right. One more step. Next month, Grace will be participating in the Explore God campaign with about two dozen other churches and ministries in the Triangle. Look for ways to use that to move someone you know one step to the right. Ask them if they've seen the Explore God signs that are popping up everywhere or the article in the Virginia Gazette this week and a couple other places that you might have been curious about yourself. Ask them if they'd be interested in finding out more. That's pretty non-threatening. Direct them to the webpage or invite them to come to hear the pastors who will be engaging in the seven questions that, uh, in their sermons starting the 16th of September. Start an outreach group in your own neighborhood. You can talk to the pastors or the elders or Donna, Vaya, or Kathy and me if you have questions. Remember Paul's call to endure hardship? We don't seek to obey Christ's call to make disciples because it's easy. It isn't sometimes because you deal with people and your own failings and shortcomings. Our primary motivation for evangelism and discipleship is love for those who don't know Christ and who are believers who need to experience more of his grace. Paul ends this section with one final challenge in verse 7. He says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, the form of the Greek word translated as consider suggests here it's not just advice. It's a strong admonition by Paul to give deep thought and careful consideration to what he has just said in this text. And that's my challenge to you. Take what you've heard, compare it to the word of God, Read that text over again this week and see what God is saying to you. The movie Hacksaw Ridge, which is a great movie, but is not for the faint of heart. 
tells the story of Desmond Doss. He was a conscientious objector who actually joined the military, and then when he got there, he said, but I can't take a weapon. You know, I've got to do this. I've got to be a conscientious objector. And they wanted to put him on trial, court-martial him, and they did, and he actually won the right to serve as a noncombatant. Now, he was ridiculed and abused by members of his unit for his stand. Then, after a vicious Japanese counterattack throws his unit off Hacksaw Ridge on the island of Okinawa, one of the bloodiest battles of World War II, Desmond does something that changes everything. He climbs up and down a steep cliff alone. And it's a rather tall cliff by rope. And earlier in the movie, you find out, you know, he wasn't very good at doing this, but he becomes better at it as he goes on. But by himself, after they had been kicked off, he would go up the rope and on the cliff and find wounded soldiers among the dead and bring them back to the edge and lower them down. He did that for 75 soldiers. One by one. His heroic act wins him the respect of his unit. They look at him very differently at the end of the movie than they did at the beginning. And he is awarded the Medal of Honor. The movie ends with a clip, a clip of the real humbling and really is unassuming Doss, saying that after he struggled to get a soldier down and felt too tired to go on, he would pray, Lord, please help me get one more. And he went back up. The Lord wants us to be actively involved in reaching the lost and helping them become faithful and fruitful disciples of Jesus Christ. We don't respond out of guilt. That's not Paul's intent. It's certainly not mine. Guilt is a very poor motivator for doing things. We don't respond out of guilt, but out of a reflection, as Paul challenges here at the end, on the deep love of Christ and what it did to us or for us through his life, death, and resurrection, and then the destiny of those who know, that we know would be if they pass into eternity without knowing that same grace. May our prayer be like Desmond's. Lord, please help me get one more. One more disciple for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know we can't keep the things that you ask us uh, to do. We can't do them on our own power, that's for sure. So we pray for your enabling grace and strength that we might be people whose hearts are burdened for those around us who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ or for our fellow believers in Christ who need to move one step to the right closer to the grace that you give to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.